On episode 120 of the Vincast, I speak with Jim Chateau, winemaker at McWilliams Mount Pleasant, Chateau Wines, and recently appointed the head winemaker for Craiglinger Wine Estates. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and it is very, very exciting to share with you listeners that uh, uh, I'm now part of a really fantastic initiative, the Earbuds Podcast Network, which is a collective of uh, awesome Melbourne-based podcasts, a very diverse range of uh, voices and uh, topics, uh, and uh, I'm really excited to be part of this uh, new initiative and uh, I do highly encourage you to check out the Earbuds website uh, and follow their Facebook page uh, and check out some of the other podcasts on there. Um, I'm really uh, flattered to be part of such illustrious company. Uh, I'm also really excited to share a new episode of the podcast. It has been a little while. Uh, and I'm very excited to have Jim Chateau, who is someone that uh, a lot of people have actually suggested I have as a guest on the show, uh, and uh, mostly because he is such an amazing winemaker and has been very present in terms of wine shows as a judge and uh, has an amazing wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to Australian wines. So uh, we spoke when he was in Melbourne not long ago, and uh, it was great to hear about his background. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please do stick around to find out how you can get in contact with both of us. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Jim, thank you very much for uh, for making uh, some special time uh, to be on the Vincast, um, particularly with, uh, I've just found out, the momentous news, um, uh, which we'll possibly come back to at some point. Um, but uh, thank you very much uh, for, for being on the show. You've been someone who I've wanted to have on for a while. A number of people have, uh, have actually said, oh, you should get Jim Chattel and he'd be great a guest on the podcast. So thank you very much. Oh, pleasure, James. I'm, I'm, I'm honoured and, and surprised that you had those requests. But yeah, no, I'm glad to be here. Uh, Jim, I start every episode of the podcast by asking the same question of my guest, uh, which is, uh, can you remember if there was a particular um, uh, occurrence in your life that made you think about wine in a different way that possibly led you on the path or was it a sort of a gradual thing? Um, well, I grew up in, in hospitality. Uh, Mum and dad uh, had a restaurant when I was a kid. So I certainly had lots of exposure to wine and food experiences growing up. Yeah. But um, there's something that does stick with me and it, and it really came to the front in my mind just last year. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in Canberra, right. and uh, Dad took me out to Edgar Reeks Winery on Lake George. Edgar, unfortunately, just passed away last year, and that's why oh, it right. sort of came came to the, the forefront for me. But uh, Dad took me out to his place a couple of times over the years, and um, I have this really strong memory of um, Edgar um, basically bouncing around his tiny barrel room on his property there, showing us samples from the barrels. And How old were you? I was a kid. I was ten, right? Maybe, okay. Something like that. Yeah. And just his um, enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. It was, um, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. It was almost childlike <laughs> enthusiasm that I hadn't seen from adults. Yeah. Um, talking about what they do and just that love for what he was doing and that excitement. Um, it sort of caught me, in a sense, and and it really caught my interest. Wow. Okay. And and as far as 
growing up and then you know finishing school and what you know going into further studies or not did you have an idea about possibly following a path in the wine industry well, well I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about wine a little bit growing up um, dad was very keen he's a chef right uh, he was very keen for me to get into wine he thought it was a probably a better career than being a chef to have a family etc um, so he sort of Be- better hours apart from that one period of the year <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But for chefs, it's all year. Yeah. They, they work those hours. <laughs> so um, he, you know, subtly pushed pushed me into it, um, introduced me to winemakers and and wine industry people over the years. But right. because that's what he his idea was, I kind of rejected that early, and thought I'd I'd do my own thing. And I actually had ideas on on being a being a photographer. In fact, really, that was sort of what I was studying at school, and thought I'd have a crack at that. I pretty quickly realised, although I was, I was good at it, I wasn't great at it. Right, okay. And um, decided that wasn't for me. Was it the technical side of things that you weren't proficient at or you just sort of the composition? I don't think I had an eye for it. Right, okay. I, I think I was um, a bit too caught up in what I thought it should look like rather than seeing the picture, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, okay I think um, I although I really – I still love photography and I love um, great images, mm-hmm. um, I can't capture them. Sure, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, like photography is like, you know, any form of art really. You can, you, you maybe have it in your mind's eye, but you can't quite get the composition right. So yeah, and perhaps I, I always have great respect for, even like photography, I yeah. have great respect for people who can who can do it. Perhaps I could have worked hard and became a really good, a good photographer. Sure. But um, I guess my golden rule for myself is to be really good at whatever I decide to do. Right. So it had to be a natural fit. And then, and so um, deciding that you weren't going to follow that path is well, I, I ended up like um, like everyone in our family ended up working for dad and um, right. I actually dropped out of school and started um, an apprenticeship with my dad as a chef. Mm. That lasted all of about six months. I think, <laughs> I, think well, I think after six months. Was it the work or working with dad? It was uh, or both. I, I think it was working with dad and, okay. and he didn't want me to be a chef. Um, he made it pretty hard on me. But I think at the end of six months, he'd sacked me five times. And I'd quit six times. So I, wow. had one, I had one up on the ledger. But, um, you know, I, it convinced me to go back to school mm-hmm. and study. And um, I sort of sat down and thought about what I might do. Um, I was good at science. Um, I wanted to um, make something. Yeah. I had that, um, I, you know, I'd studied art and I'd done drama. Um, photography was there. I'd, I'd enjoyed the idea of making something, being creative. Right, okay. And I was good at science. And... Um, I just thought about what was interesting and wine was always there in the background growing up. And so I made some inquiries at Charles State University Mm -hmm. and went along for an open day and met some really cool, really interesting people. And that was it. I was hooked and enrolled. Even at that age, did you kind of look at wine and think of it, you know, breaking it down from a, a scientific perspective, but also kind of looking at it more of an as an artistic um, pursuit, in terms of the way you'd look at a picture or a painting or a sculpture, and kind of be able to um, really admire and recognise the technique, but then the actual the the art of it, the, the 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 originality of it. Did you kind of did you start to look at wine in that way? Yeah. Well, I mean, Dad showed me lots of wines growing up, and and, and friends of his did as well, and they they spoke about individual winemakers yeah. and their style yeah. just like you'd speak about artists so right. that that resonated with me I, I that was my image of what winemaking was um, I figured it was a job I think you, you know there was a certain alchemy to it 
but um, certainly I saw more the creative side of it before the technical side of it. Right, okay. Um, what sort of wines did, did were, were your parents into? Well, your dad or what he served in his restaurants and, and the wines you were kind of oh, um, cutting your teeth on, so to speak? Look, we, we went through some of his old menus from the um, 80s um, and it's, it's quite amazing. This was before um, photocopiers, late <laughs> 70s, early 80s. And mum and dad actually got the first photocopier in the restaurant industry in Canberra. And wow. they used to photocopy everyone else's menus for them. <laughs> nice <laughs> which, little side business. Crazy, but, but all the menus were handwritten. Right. And the wines they had on their, their list were, were just amazing and affordable. Great wines from Europe, from the old world. Um, a good selection of Australian wines, but it was predominantly European wines. Right. And, you know, mum still says she only drinks Montrachet with Chardonnay. Um, because that's what they had on by the glass. Ooh, in the la restaurant, la. You know, goodness <laughs> she, she doesn't get to drink it anymore. <laughs> I should point out, but who, who does? She, but she Come always on. claims that. Uh, I've had so many guests on the show complain about, oh my god, Burgundy there's less of it, and it's becoming more expensive. Um, wow. Okay. I mean, it's interesting that like there was a market for, I guess, more European wines. I mean, because Canberra politicians, I don't know, like business. Yeah, look, look, I mean, I think um, a, a, pop, a population that enjoyed eating out right. and had a fair bit of expendable income, mm-hmm. I think that was that was Canberra. It probably still is. I, I haven't lived there for, for nearly 30 years, but, um, you know, that's what it was like back then. So what was your the career path? How did you kind of go, okay, here's the first step into this industry. I'm, I'm, I'm keen to get into it. What was? How did you go about it? Well, I I, I simply enrolled at Charles Sturt Uni and um, started the the wine science course there. Right. I um, took jobs along the way. Uh, got, tried to get as much experience as I could. Um, like as in winery? Or yeah, vintage winery. Jobs? winery so okay. so vintage jobs. I actually I um, took my first job in the Hunter Valley. Yep. Um, outside of outside of uni, and I actually interestingly, I applied I applied for the job at uh, Mount Pleasant. Um, back in 1993, wow! Um, and I'd seen the the 1984 Lovedale Semi on at university. Yeah, as a in about 1990-91, so six seven year old wine. Mm. Um, I, I'd seen this wine and just was enamoured in how fresh and how bright it was. And I'd never seen a white wine at that age looking so fresh and bright. And so I wrote a letter to um, uh, Phil Ryan who was the winemaker at, at Mount Pleasant, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, applied to come and do the vintage in the harvest in 1994. Mm. Um, Hunter Valley was pretty well, you know, redeveloped at that point. Yeah, look, look, Hunter um, then was, you know, that's what I knew. I knew more about the Hunter, I think, because it was close enough to Canberra and Sydney. Right. So um, Dad used to go up there all the time um, and took me on trips up there, that sort of thing. So it seemed like it seemed like a logical... Um, Place also, um, I think a lot of young university students end up in the Hunter um, for their first couple of vintages because it ties in beautifully with then getting back to university. So sure. the harvest is over before um, the, yeah, the, the semester starts. True, true. Yeah. Um, and how did you find the the experience of uh, studying at Charles Sturt? Who were some of your your, your classmates? Um, well, I'm still pretty good mates with. We we're a tight little gang. Mm-hmm. Um, Simon Black. From Montalto down yep. in Mornington, yep. uh, Geraldine McFall, who's at Willow Creek, right in Mornington as well, yep. incidentally, <laughs> and uh, Tobias Anstead, uh-huh. who's got his own brand, Anstead and Co., right. um, and he's based out near Bendigo. Yep. So we were sort of a tight little pack. There was a broader group, but I think we 
we sort of stuck together and um, have, you know, remained good friends all this time. Right. Did the Charles Sturt course become a, a bit bigger as time moved on? Like I, th- I would have thought that sort of through the late 90s and 2000s with the expansion of the Australian wine industry, the, the demand for qualified winemakers would have um, increased a lot and so there would have been a lot more people studying it. Oh, look, de- definitely. I mean, it started as the, the Wagga or the Riverina Ag College. Yeah. Wagga Ag College. And um, by the time I got there in the early 90s, it was um, – a, a a pretty serious course and well subscribed. Yep. Um, certainly after I left and then consequently employing um, graduates and undergraduates, um, there were seemed to be a lot, lot more of them coming mm. through um, to the point that I remember in, in sort of mid-2000s or early 2000s even, um, we had a whole bunch of cellar hands in the winery at First Creek that were all qualified winemakers, that they were working as cellar hands. Yeah. So I think I, I was sort of lucky enough, I got in right at the tail end just before the expansion really happened. So I was already in a job and um, establishing my career and, and, and I guess name um, as a winemaker just as things were starting to really kick. Wow. So what was your first sort of full-time gig out of uni? Um, Tamblaine in the Hunter Valley um, w- was... It was never full-time. It was sort of I did three years in a row. I used to vintage hop, do the, the hunter harvest, and then over to, to Europe and work. Yeah. So my first um, full-time job as a winemaker in charge, not reporting to another winemaker, was down in Tasmania in 1998. I went down as the the inaugural winemaker for uh, Roseview's estate. Right. Was uh, Tasmania already starting to get a lot of um, interest, particularly as far as sparkling wines? Was that still early well, days? It was that? very early days. Yeah. Um, I think there'd been some good wines and interesting wines. Um, you didn't hear a lot about it. Um, I think the champions back then were um, Andrew Peary mm-hmm. at um, at Piper's Brook. He was certainly somebody I knew about. Um, he he'd been involved in writing part of the course for for Charles Sturt. Oh wow! As well, so I knew him from lecture notes, etc., sure. etc. Um, you know, Claude Redenti um, down at Freycinet, yep. Steve Lubiana, those guys were just sort of starting off there when I was at college. Domain A. Domain A, yep, yep, yep. yep. More, a bit more established. Yeah. Um, but it was certainly felt like it was it was emerging. Right. You know, and, and that, that seemed pretty interesting. So, you know, I was, I was keen when, when a role, role occurred down there. How did you find the, the shift down to, to Tasmania, you know, significantly cooler climate than the... Uh, than a lot of other Australian regions. Oh, it was it was very different and um, interesting. I bought I bought a couple of bags of um, tartaric acid, which are probably still in that winery today. Lol. Yeah, <laughs> they were ne- they were never used. They yeah. were never used. Um, look, I guess the biggest challenge for me is I came from the Hunter, and the Hunter is a, a really mature wine wine region in Australia. Sure, um, it's very very um, collegiate. In the way they operate, the wine the winemakers work together really well there. Yeah, and that was something I that wasn't there when I first moved to Tasmania. Yeah, it was still a very guarded industry, and I think that talks to a, a less mature industry. Sure, um, it was very guarded, and really the only guys that I could talk to to get advice and 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 um, you know learn from and share information and and show my wines to were. Um, the two guys I mentioned, um, Claude Redenti in particular and um, Steve Lubiana, they, mm-hmm. the, they were the, the two younger guys um, that were in Tasmania at the time. Right, okay. It would, well, I know Steve had moved down to Tassie. It was Claude, was he a Tasmanian? 
No, 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 Claude. Um, I guess, in a sense, married into it. Right. So um, his his wife, um, Lindy, um, her father, uh, Jeff Bull, um, founded Freysonet. Right. So okay. that was their family. Okay. The reason I ask is it's interesting that the three of you were sort of outsiders coming in to kind of to, to, to work on the wine. So I think that maybe that possibly is part of the reason you, there was a little bit more conviviality and support for each other. I, I think, I guess so. Um, you know, you, you're probably right, but it also was a very small industry and, and outside of a couple of the key players, it was a um, cottage industry. It was sure. essentially um, retiring or retired professionals yep. with a piece of land. Yep. Now let's, um, what can I do? I'm going to put it in a vineyard. Yep. And I guess the big change now, which is really exciting down there, is those vineyards are now 30-odd years old. Yeah. And those guys, their kids that have been working as professionals all around the world are now coming back. Right. And they're, you know, coming back and taking ownership of those 30-year-old vineyards. And then taking that to the world. And taking that, well, taking that to the next level. That's also attracting a whole new wave of young professionals to come to Tasmania. Sure. So, you know, it it is pretty exciting. Um, I think the future is huge because you've got those vineyards, those those mature vineyards, but they're not necessarily on the best sites and they're not necessarily with the best clones. Sure. So if we think forward another 10 years, 20 years, you're going to have – wealth of knowledge and, and, and a real professional industry, yep. you're going to have the best sides with the best um, matches of clones. Yeah. And I think that's when you... And potentially other varieties? And uh, oh, Yeah, other, of course, other varieties. <laughs> <laughs> clones of Chardonnay, yeah, Pinot, yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever varieties. But, I, know, um, I know Chardonnay, Pinot, awesome, yeah, love yeah. it. But I, I think, well, I guess um, the, the varieties and or clones most suited on the best sites. Yeah, and, absolutely. you know, I'd argue that the best sites probably haven't been found in Tasmania yet. I, th- I would think that possibly one of the other big um, differences between now and then is that there's a, a, a really um, vibrant tourism industry, I think, particularly out of Hobart. You know, so, something like Mona brings a lot of people into town and I know for a fact that there's a, a really um, exciting um, food and wine scene uh, in Hobart and so that's potentially, you know, increasing um, visitation too wine regions, two wineries, uh, you know, and for Steve, for example, um, at the Ljubljana winery has a really lovely restaurant, you know, and I think that's only going to bring more attention and, and uh, exposure to, oh, it, to the Tassie It is. Wines. I mean, it's pretty exciting down there at the moment. Um, you know, it seems to be there's so much going on. There's, it's so dynamic. Um, there's people um, visiting all the time. We get so many because I've moved down there permanently now. Yeah. Um, we get we're getting visitors weekly from the mainland. People on holiday asking for where to stay, where to go, what you know, what to do. All talking about you know, I want to buy a block of, block of land. I've <laughs> found something down here, and I think it is. Um, I think Mona's been really important for Tasmania. Yeah. And it's it's world class. It 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 really I mean it's always been a destination, but it really makes it an international destination, I believe. It feels so much less isolated now as Definitely. well. It, I think there are a lot more flights going down for example, and so I think in, and it, it's only an hour from Melbourne, so I think that it, it it becomes a lot more desirable just to sort of go down for a weekend kind of thing. So that's another reason, you know, it's not that far or if you, or if you are indeed commuting from Tassie as you are, um, you know, it's one hour to Melbourne and then another hour to Sydney. Well, that, that's right. I, I mean, I come into Melbourne regularly and do a day's work and, and get home and I can, um, you know, usually miss breakfast, but I usually can get home for dinner. So yeah. it's, um, it's really easy from where I am. So that first move down to Tassie was uh, a pretty important 
um, time for you? Uh, well, it, pretty, it, some pretty momentous things happens. Well, definitely, it, it caught my eye. Um, I, um, I and I've said this before. I, f- I fell in love with Tasmanian Pinot, and I fell in love with the Tasmanian. Yeah, and uh, both have stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I moved down in '98, um, and I moved back to the mainland in 2000. Right. My girlfriend, now wife Daisy, was um, ready to leave Tasmania um, and explore the the bigger world. Sure. Um, and I had a, a, a really interesting opportunity to go back as a, a, a more senior winemaker in a company in the Hunter Valley. So we both sort of jumped at that. Um, it was meant to be a three-year contract. Um, some 17 years later, we've finally moved back. Um, okay, so so back to the hunter, um, senior role. You were taking a bit more ownership, getting to know the region a little bit better. Um, how did you feel that Hunter Valley was evolving in that time? Oh, it, it was moving fast. And, um, you know, I, when I came in, um, there was still, if I can call it the old guard, were there and, you know, they probably were the young guys <laughs> 20 years prior, et cetera. Sure, sure. But there was a real changing of the guard, if you like. And all of a sudden, within a few years, the young guys and girls like myself were suddenly in charge of wineries. And um, I guess, you know, challenging ideas, challenging style um, and, and I guess reflecting on what we're doing well and, and what can be improved. So it was a pretty exciting time. Yeah. And... I'm assuming you had a love for Semyon, of course. Um, Shiraz, a big, a big fan of uh, Hunter Shiraz? Well, I am. And, you know, there, there was a time when it wasn't fashionable to say so. But, you know, I, I've, I've great Hunter Shiraz, I think, is, is so unique and so important in the world of wine. It's, you know, it's funnily, it's on style right now. It's, you know, that medium bodied style. Yeah. But, you know, the cool climate Shiraz guys, it's very similar style. Um, their, their Shiraz is more spicy. Sure. Hunter's more savory. Yeah. But just that, that medium body, that great balance of, of Hunter wines. And, you know, I'd, I'd challenge any Australian region to match Hunter Reds for longevity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know I've, uh, I've opened up um, some, some Hunter Shiraz on the, on my YouTube channel um with a bit of age and it, like they 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 still look fresh but they they have this really interesting kind of umami character that i that i really respond to so you know i'm keen to sort of look at some older examples as well um and as far as at that point were you getting into sort of into the market as it were and being able to talk to you know influencers and and media and stuff like that you know how was how was Australian wine in general kind of evolving at that time for you? Well, um, I guess when I was first in the industry, it was bigger, better, best. Yeah. And um, with red wine yeah. in particular. Yeah. And I think we're all chasing um, those big blockbuster Aussie styles that, that we'd, we'd essentially sold to the world, sure. the concept of, of Australian red wine. Um, you know, so that, that that's tough when you're a winemaker in the Hunter Valley because you're making medium-bodied savoury wines, not big, juicy rich full-bodied wines yeah so it was it was was a tough business getting out there in the trade and i remember um you know my first few times down in victoria um and and in melbourne in particular um selling hunter wines it was really hard work i found it really hard work um right now it's the exact opposite it's amazing interesting when i was working at pepper tree wines um which has a portfolio 
broader than the hunter. They had Coonawarra and Rat and Bully as well. And I remember going into the trade for the first time with Pepper Tree. Um, this was in about 2007. And, um, you know, we took down with our, with, with our distributor, local distributor, took a whole bunch of Coonawarra and Rat and Bully wines. And um, the first thing I was asked is, where are the hunter wines? Wow. And I was quite shocked. And I said, I'll be back. <laughs> next month with the hunter wines and it's uh, that was sort of the turning point i think where i think um particularly down here in victoria where people started to recognize um what's special about hunter valley wine do you think that that and and considering that your your dad was a chef um and can appreciate that um do you think that that has a little bit to do with the, the changing um tastes and and drinking behavior where people were kind of thinking more about wine that is better with food and like looking at a really bombastic Barossa Shiraz or McLaren Val Grenache or Kunawara Cabernet um, that they kind of uh, kind of overwhelmed food and, and maybe that that kind of that, that shift in the scene in Melbourne possibly led to a bit more interest in those hunter styles because they were a little bit more um, effective in terms of matching with food? Oh, look, certainly. I think, um, you know, even in my lifetime, we've in Australia come a long way with cuisine and, 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 and um, occasion and, and how, we, how we pair things. Um, so I think, I think that's critical and I think that's, that's why you've seen the rise and rise of, of Cool Climate Shiraz and of Pinot, mm -hmm. et cetera, because these are light to medium-bodied red wines and yeah. they're, they're genuinely, more, uh, genuinely more versatile and um, I guess more more sympathetic to 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 eating. Yeah. You know? um, so when did you get the opportunity to to make the shift uh, to McWilliams? Uh, that came about in um, well, the conversation started back in two thousand and eight. In fact, right. I was um, doing a little bit of uh, consulting work for McWilliams, sourcing Pinot from Tasmania. All right. Um, and, you know, I'd started to source a bit of fruit and, and link them up with a few vineyards. And uh, that was all through Jim Brain, who um, was um, a, a long time ago the chief winemaker Rick Williams, but these days he's the chairman of the company. Right. And I, I'd met Jim through the wine shows um, over the years, and he approached me. Um, I think I was the only bloke he really knew that knew anything about Tasmania at the time. So we started sort of pairing up some things. Uh, they then employed um, uh, Corey Ryan um, as, as their group winemaker out of uh, Villa Maria in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And um, I sort of, you know, disappeared <laughs> off into the distance. And But then um, in 2012, I, I had a client who um, I'd convinced to take their winemaking to McWilliams. They had a nice synergy with the Hilltops and also with Tumbarumba. Sure. And I uh, convinced them to take their winemaking there. And just in a blending session with the McWilliams winemaking team, I just asked, you know, what's happening with uh, Mount Pleasant? Um, you know, because I'm in the Hunter and, and I'm, I'm really interested in Mount Pleasant. And um, Phil Ryan had, had recently um, retired, mm -hmm. but there was no sort of announcement about who was, who was going to take over that pattern. No succession plan. Yeah, so I just, I just um, you know, quite um, candidly asked the question and um, uh, Jim Brain looked at me and said, why do you want the job? It was as simple as that. Wow, there you go. So... Um Mount Pleasant runs sort of 
independently of, of McWilliams? It's like, a, it's like a separate winery? Oh, look, it's a separate winery, but it's, it's owned by the McWilliams family. Right. Um, it has been um, since the 40s. Sure. Well, they, in fact, they took a half share in 1932, so it's... It's um, not it was, a, not a new venture for them. It was a bit of a that was like a cash injection for Morris, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, a, a bit of both. I think McWilliams were looking to diversify out into premium winemaking. Yeah. Um, at the time, being based based in the Riverina. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it was a, an opportunity for both both parties in that sense. Um, they then um, put further cash into the business and um, took control of the business, but kept Morris on as the manager. Yeah. Um, on the site until he died in 1956. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I have read um, Campbell's fantastic book. Oh, it's excellent. Uh, I couldn't put it that down. Yeah. I've read that in, I think, a day. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so I have a lot of interest in Mount Pleasant and um, I, can, I can imagine that this sort of it must have been a, a somewhat daunting kind of proposition stepping into that role because I, I believe you were only the fourth um, chief winemaker for Mount Pleasant since Morris. Yes, yes, you're right. So it, big it shoes was, to fill. Oh, certainly. I'd, I've been wearing three pairs of socks ever since. <laughs> but uh, look, look um, as I referred to earlier, I, I discovered Mount Pleasant at university. Yeah. And I applied for my first ever job there. Yeah. Um, I didn't get the job, but ironically, some twenty years later, I got the job, so to speak. So it's always. I think we still have your CV on file. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's. I don't think they did, <laughs> but it's. Um, it's like it's always been um, a, a vineyard. I've been jealous of their, their resources, if you like. Sure. Um, they're great red vineyards uh, and that Lovedale vineyard. And it's always some of the vineyards have been part of my, I call them barometer blocks, right. if you like, and, you know, where during harvest I might jump the fence and go and have a taste and see how they're tracking. And it helps put the whole region in perspective for me, but right. more importantly, the, the vineyards that I'm making wine from. Sure. So, I mean, by the time I came on board in for the 2013 vintage, I'd been looking at that Lovedale vineyard for nearly 20 years. Yeah. Every year and tasting the grapes, you know, at harvest time, that sort of thing. So I'd sort of been, I guess, mapping how I'd make it if I had the opportunity you, in my head. You, 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 you've, you've got your cheat sheets already so you can step in and just ace the exam. It was a funny first moment in, in, in 2013. So I was there with, um, with uh, Jim Brain and uh, Scott McWilliam and we were going through the vineyard talking about how to pick it and um, Scott had sort of said, well, we've been doing this, this quadrant, we've been picking in this quadrant, the, you know, the old block of Lovedale, which was planted in 1946. And I said, oh, I reckon we should pick it differently. And he looked at me like, you know, who, who's this guy? <laughs> and, I, and I said, oh, no disrespect at all, Scott, but I have been, I've been coming in here for 20 years. Yeah. been looking at this vineyard. And I think actually the, the, the flavour changes more um, as you move down the block rather than in these four quadrants. And, um, you know, I said, look, let, let me just pick one parcel out mm -hmm. and we'll make that separately and see how it goes. And um, it's the 2013 Lovedale. There you go. Ironically, well, not ironically, but um, you know, nicely. <laughs> um, now you've, uh, I think you mentioned before about wine shows. You've been um, pretty involved with wine shows for a long time. How did you kind of get into wine show judging? Was it uh, was it a, a Len Evans thing by any chance? Well, it, well, I, I guess it was, and I, well, I've got a Len Evans story from my first wine show, but um, a a local winemaker um, who was an associate judge for some reason, couldn't make the Hunter Valley Wine Show. Um, this was in 1998, so nearly 20 years ago. Yeah. And I got the call up and um, I was I was pretty excited, but I didn't know 
what I'd be doing. I you know, had no idea at all. I w- so I went and spoke to the only bloke I knew that knew anything about wine shows, and that was Neil McGuigan. Right. And, you know, Neil sort of looked me up and down and said, look at your gym. You know, if you can't be a good judge, sure, you've got, well, you want to look like one, wear a tie. <laughs> and I thought, okay, wear a tie. That's okay. That, thank, thanks for that, Neil. Like, really, that's, that's interesting information. Um, I'm, I look like a ragamuffin. I better wear a tie. So um, on the first day of the show, um, I was waiting to be picked up by a couple of mates, um, Al Sutherland, um, who's unfortunately passed away, formerly of Saxonvale, mm-hmm. and Kappa Cayley, and Andrew Thomas who's uh, still in the Hunter Valley today. And those guys picked me up on the side of the road to head out to the uh, Singleton Army base for the show. And I noticed they weren't wearing ties. <laughs> um, so, you know, the 40-minute trip out to the show, you know, they gave it to me on every angle possible about wearing a tie. And when I turned up at the show and all the other judges were there, I noticed nobody was wearing a tie. And um, save Len Evans, who was wearing a tie, yeah. being the chairman of the show. And during his, I guess, preamble to the judges, he sort of walked around all the judges, um, you know, talking as, as, as he would, and he stopped at me and, and proceeded to straighten my tie and, um, you know, said out quite loudly to all the other judges, good to see somebody wearing a tie, <laughs> and then whispered to me, are you after my job? Oh, wow. Which, which I thought was kind of ironic because... Um, in 2012, I did take over as chairman of the Hunter Valley Wine Show, and I and I relayed that story yeah. on the uh, at the award ceremony. So, um, I guess, sort of rising up through the ranks of the of the show judging system, how have you kind of seen they've 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 changed, and are they kind of staying on on trends, and and you know how are they how are they kind of trying to stay relevant in the the changing wine market? I think um, by being more inclusive, um, when I first came into judging, um, and it was already starting to change when I first came into judging, but when I first came into judging, um, the, the typical Australian wine show judge was a um, 40-year-old winemaker, generally a 40-year-old male winemaker, yeah. from one of the large companies. Sure. And that was the judge. And there might have been a, a token uh uh, journalist, uh, maybe a token retailer, um, and an international judge. Right. Um, these days, it's a whole different mix, and it's guys and girls, which is fantastic. It's um, um, people from all different walks of the wine life: um, media, retailers, sommeliers, restaurateurs, um, winemakers. The whole lot mm-hmm. are there, and so you're getting all sorts of different ideas and different experiences coming into the discussion. And, and I think that's what keeps it relevant, is, ha- is having that whole mix of ideas. And I still think it is, it is really important. And a lot of the trends I see out in the marketplace, um, although you first see them as a consumer, in, in, I guess, in the wine bars around the place, yeah. um, but you first, the ideas first sort of pop up in the wine shows and challenging, challenging ideas and the discussions that happen in the wine shows. Then I've seen that sort of really kick off in the in in the wine bars mm-hmm. and then it sort of becomes more mainstream sort of three to five years later so I think they're still really quite relevant and and things we're discussing um, in the wine shows and that's what we're there for the people are there, they're all volunteers mm-hmm. they're there because they love wine they love Australian wine and um, they, they're all keen to explore what that is and really push the boundaries 
as far as sort of one of the the, the main ideas about the wine show um, system is is as far as improving the breed, as it were. You know, I guess going back to the kind of the agricultural show kind of concept. Um, do you think that it's possibly changed a little bit, and now there is some promotion of a bit of diversity as well, and not sort of saying this grape variety from this region should look like this and sort of saying, well, let's let's sort of take a step back and actually say, well, firstly, is it of quality, you know, and then, you know, is it representative of of, of this or, or this? Do you think that that's kind of oh, coming into it a definitely. bit as well? I think um, there's almost an analogy for, for a, a nascent wine judge or a young wine judge and, and the way the wine show system started. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the adage of improving the breed, I think, was, was, was good to a point. Now it's about like explore, expanding our horizons, if you like. And generally, when a, when a young judge comes in or a one, young wine taster comes into the industry, they judge on style. Sure. They're completely style focused and they, they all completely miss quality. Because they're judging in a, in a box of style, right? And I think as you as you mature as a wine taster, and this goes for consumers as well, but as you mature on, on your journey with wine, you um, you learn to appreciate um, quality across style, and I think that's where the wine shows are heading, mm-hmm. where they're where they're saying you know it's not just you know a template for what is great great Shiraz. But great Shiraz in Australia can be savoury, medium-bodied hunter Shiraz. It can be juicy, full-bodied Barossa Shiraz yeah. and everything in between. Yeah. And I think, you know, once once um, judges and wine shows feel, I guess, empowered to um, find great examples of all of those, it, it, it makes it so much better. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I completely agree with you as well. Um, so... In spite of you know the the, the amazing um, uh, opportunity as far as working at Mount Pleasant uh, was uh, you know Tasmania did kind of lure you back a little bit, um, and so you started um, uh, your own little project as well with the Chateau wines. Yeah, look, look, I, I never left Tasmania. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I never left Tasmania, and I never will. Um, as so, from the, from the wine perspective, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 I mean physically yeah, I, yeah, okay. and from the wine perspective. Right. Um, okay. You know, I um, just fell in love with the the intensity and the purity of the fruit. Yep. And I hadn't seen that anywhere else. And it's not just grapes. Um, you know, you go down there in summer and try all the berry fruits, the raspberries, the cherries, blackberries, the whole lot. There's just so much intensity of flavour. Yep. And, I, you know, that to me caught my eye and it still does with the wine. The winemaking there is pretty easy because there's so much intensity of flavour. Sure. And purity, as you say. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame true. that New Zealand kind of uh, took the ownership of that word. I think Tasmania should have taken it. <laughs> yes. Um, so how did you approach the, the Chateau wines? Well, we, I started it with a bit of a, I guess, a, a false start, if you like, back in 2000. Right. Um, where I bought a bit of fruit locally and um, made a bit of wine and I had a couple of partners in the business because, you know, I was being paid a pittance as a, as a, as a young winemaker. Yeah. And um, that sort of went along for about six years and we sold the wine, and, but we didn't make any money. Um, and it was really hard to fund growth and, sure. and buy the barrels and buy the bottles and the labels, that sort of thing. Um, so we were making it and selling it, um, doing a lot of work for the love of it, which was which was okay. But um, one of the partners um, wanted to see some better returns, and that it sort of 
it ended up sort of part partners tend to do yeah, that. It, it ended up collapsing in on itself, and um, in, in all that time, Daisy and I had been looking for a property in Tasmania, and I I focused primarily on the north of Tasmania, Tamar, because that's where I'd worked and that's what I knew. Sure, but. Um, in that sort of search and um, getting married down there as well, we fell in love with the South. And I sort of sat down and, and thought about my, my favourite five Tasmanian pinots I'd ever tried, and three of them were from the Huon Valley. Yeah, right. And, you know, so that sort of cut it for me. Yeah, right, fair enough. And how, how has the, since, since then, how has the Chateau Wines story kind of evolved? Well, we... Um, search for a you know search for we did originally as i said search in the tamar but we eventually found a little um north-facing block in the hewan a little place called glazier's bay yeah and um it just seemed too perfect it was north-facing block um, with water views and it had been an apple orchard in a you know previous incarnation but it, it um it just sort of ticked all the boxes for us it wasn't too big i didn't want to spend you know 24 you know seven days a week on a vineyard every day of the week i wanted to be out talking about my wines and telling stories about not telling stories telling the story of my wine sure. and showing my wine to people yeah um as much as i love gardening and i love being in the vineyard i wanted that opportunity to um get out there as it well didn't want to, you didn't want to be at the sacrifice of being cut off i was i was also i was a winemaker by training sure so for me um viticulture i'd studied at university i hadn't practiced it in, in great depth for, for a lot of years. And so it was an opportunity to relearn viticulture sure. and um, do that for myself. So we, we bought a property in, in 2006 and set about planting uh, the vineyard in, in 2007. Right. So they're, they're starting to hit their strides, not quite reaching maturity yet, but, uh, uh, you know, in five, 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 ten more years. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I guess a long way off. Um, I joked to somebody that... Um, you know, well, hopefully um, one of my daughters or both of them will end up making the best wines off our property. <laughs> that is every winemaker's dream, I think, is, is that their children will hopefully yeah. follow on their footsteps, especially if you have a, a vineyard and, and, you know, you want them to, to tend it with as much love and attention as you do. Well, and a vineyard's a long game. And, you know, that's yeah, been yeah. really brought home to me being at Mount Pleasant where our vineyards there go back to 1880. Yeah, of course. It's a it's a long game. That's legacy. It's a really long game. And so, you know, I, I think I found a great little site down in the Huon Valley, and I think we're making some lovely wines in the early days, Yeah, which to me is, you know, really promising and gratifying um, that people enjoy them as well. But um, ultimately, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping for big things for that site, um, likely beyond my tenure, my life mm. even, you know. And Tasmania is about to become even more important in your professional life with, uh, the, I believe, the very recent news of you working with uh, Kreglinger. And uh, so you'll be spending a bit more time making some wine down, down in Tassie. But uh, that, that's exciting. It's interesting to see what's going to happen there. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, um, just announced today, um, I've taken a role as the chief winemaker for the Kreglinger Group. Um, which which has uh, Piper's Brook mm-hmm. in Tasmania. It also has Norfolk Rise in um, the Limestone Coast. But um, the big uh, vineyard holding and uh, part of the business is is based in the north of Tasmania at Piper's Brook, which is which is pretty exciting. Yeah, and I I, I mean just speaking from a, a sparkling wine perspective, like Tasmania was always kind of top of the list for me and and i always had a soft spot for the the kreglinger sparkling wines i thought they were fantastic and and under under underappreciated oh look definitely and 
you know, I think when I first um, came down to Tassie in 1998, um, Pipers was the undisputed leader. Yeah. Um, in you know, for innovation and quality, um, you know, those guys were, were ahead of the game on everyone else. I think um, the industry's grown up a lot in in it's nearly 20 years since then. Um, as I mentioned, there's there's a whole um, raft of professionals coming in. There's new sites. There's new clones. There's new ideas. It's it's such a good dynamic, and um, you know I think Piper's, if if I'm honest, got a little bit left behind there for a while. Right. And you know I I, I, I sort of came on board with them in in a small way over the last couple of years, just sort of helping the winemaking team tweak the blends and their approaches to how they made the wines and that sort of thing. And we're seeing some nice little incremental improvements and uh, now it's an opportunity to really dial that up. One of the things that I've um, been seeing recently with Tasmanian wine that's been very exciting is that, you know, I'm starting to see a bit more diversity. Like 10 years ago, I kind of would look at Tasmanian wine as all being fairly similar with the exception of a handful of producers um, Tasmanian Chardonnay, Tasmanian Pinot tasted fairly similar but recently I've been seeing a lot of really different expressions and I think it, you know, it is an exciting time for Tasmanian wine and I know that I've had a, a couple of uh, guests on the podcast who are you know, like yourself at that forefront of um, bringing Tasmanian wine and you know bring it into the 21st century and beyond uh, and putting their hand up. You know, my most recent guest was uh, Greg Lambrecht, the inventor of the Coravan device, and he said, I love Tasmanian wine. And I know that, you know, that's a big part of that is the exciting stuff that's happening down there. So I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with the, with the new role. Uh, and obviously there's already an opportunity for all the listeners to, uh, to be able to drink wines made by yourself um, with uh, Mount Pleasant and with the, the Chateau wines. But uh, uh, I want to say thank you very much for making some time. It has been really fascinating to, to find out more a bit, a bit more about your background. Um, and there are ways for people to find out more about the Chateau wines online. Well, well um, funny timing because today is actually our launch of our 2016. There you go. So I don't do anything in halves, everything all on the same day. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we've just um, released our 2016s and um, Daisy's on the computer manning the phones, um, taking charge of it. It's been, you know, the support's been fantastic since we started um, the Chateau project. And, um, yeah, it's, I think, the the black label, our aisle, our single vineyard wine's almost sold out on the first day of release. Wow. Which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, our listeners, I guess, uh, find out more about the Chateau Wines online, follow them on social media, uh, and please do uh, let uh, Jim know that you enjoyed uh, this episode. But I'm um, looking forward to, to catching up again soon. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. And thank you, listeners, for joining me on another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And you can follow me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I am at Intrepid Wino. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on a number of, any number of different platforms, whether it's iTunes, Player FM, Podbean, Stitcher. Subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and on those platforms, it's a great way to share feedback by leaving me a rating and review, uh, which also helps to grow the audience. So I really do appreciate uh, anyone who makes the time to, uh, to leave me a rating and a review. You can come and visit me at intrepidwino.com. There's lots of different content, uh, like videos and uh, writings I've done in the past, uh, and lots of different ways of getting in contact with me as well. 
Uh, again, I would love for you to check out some of the other podcasts in the uh, Earbuds Network, uh, which can be found at earbudsnetwork.com. Uh, but uh, until next time, guys, bye. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com.